Welcome to the Life and Language podcast. I'm Michaela Malberg. I'm a linguist. I'm interested in how we use language to tell the stories and create the narratives that shape our society, our culture, and our reality. My guest today is the brilliant Darren Rees Jones. Darren is a poet, an editor, and a critic. She has won numerous awards, and if we read them all the time, would be up. So just mentioning a few. In 2004, Darren was named as one of Miss Lexia's top 10 women poets of the decade. And in that same year, she was also chosen as one of the Poetry Book Society's Next Generation Poets. In, 2020, in 2010, she received a Chomley Award from the Society of Authors. Darren's most recent book of poems, Erato, which she published in 2019, was a Poetry Book Society recommendation and shortlisted for the Welsh Book of the Year and the T.S. Eliot Prize in that same year. Darren does not only write poetry, but also teaches creative writing as a professor at the University of Liverpool. Welcome to the show, Darren. Hello, Michaela. It's really lovely to be here with you. <laughs> to start us off, can you begin with how you became a poet? So share your journey with us. How did you get here? So that seems like quite a simple question, but um, I was thinking about it a lot this morning before we started to talk. And I think there's two answers to this. One is uh, an answer which tells a story. Um, and that story might be a story of uh, growing up. So um, of being a very little child and um, losing a sibling when, when I was in a, a, a state where I, I didn't have language. And I think the more I think retrospectively now that that has been a really formative part um, of my relationship with language because it points to a place of where things cannot be said and aren't spoken. So I think that sits in there, um, you know, it's not something that I really remember at all, but it sits there as a sort of prompt to, to what I do, I think, in reaching for ways of saying things that can't be said or can't easily be said. Um, and I think running along with that is my um, identity as somebody who is Welsh or has a complicated relationship to Welshness. I have a very Welsh name, but in many ways I was removed from a Welsh speaking culture that my family came from. I grew up in Liverpool and also in a generation of speakers where you spoke English in order to get on. So I'm always aware that I'm inscribed in one language, which is a language that I don't speak. And I think that way of relating to a sense of um, a, a way of being in the world that is not my own sits alongside that other narrative of unsayability. So it, it, it can sound um, like a narrative of loss, but actually I, I, I think in many ways it's it's been a very useful creative space from which to work. So that that's the storytelling version of, of this. Um, mm. But I think I'm more interested in some ways about that whole idea of being a poet, because, you know, thinking about that word poet, the fact that it comes from the idea to create, to make, 
I think that saying I am a poet is quite a hard thing because it ossifies things. And I think every time you take a run at writing a poem, you become a poet, if that's not too um, fanciful a way of thinking about things. I know that every time I come to a poem, I have to harness all sorts of things, affects, histories, contexts, and I become a self that, that then writes. So each time I'm a poet or each time I'm writing poetry, so being a poet feels like quite an alien thing in some ways. Although saying that, I'm, I'm also qualifying that with me feeling that there is a real importance to being being a poet within a community and speaking with and for people that you might wish to represent. So it's complex. It's complex. Um, how did you become a poet? I think the really simple answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and also that it is an ongoing thing. One becomes a poet. Mm -hmm. And how, I mean, that's maybe something listeners will also be interested in. How did you then get into this fortunate situation to be able to do this as a yeah, full-time job in a way, like being a poet, teaching creative writing at the university, yeah, and making this your main occupation? Mm, well, it is a double life. Um, and, and in a way, poetry was always my job external to the university. And I did for a while keep it very separate. Um, mm. Now it's more integrated. Um, so maybe I was an academic writing poetry, now perhaps I'm a poet who also writes as an academic. Um, it's a huge privilege, of course, to be able to say that your job is sitting with students reading texts and thinking about poetry. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing to be able to do. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And maybe we get to a point later where we can also look at what amazing things that can do for the people who aren't in the room with you, but the broader impact of it. So maybe we can get straight into one of your maybe very recent projects. So there is one that is a collaborative book that you've done very recently, and that has the title On Being Ill. What is this project about? Well, um, there is an amazing uh, dot, uh, fairly new press called Hetmote, um, which is run by a friend, very good friend of a friend, Elta Rao. And um, she uh, had an experience of illness herself and she wanted to reissue Virginia Woolf's famous essay on being ill. Hmm. And so she asked me to write a preface to this book, which includes lots of essays um, by contemporary women writers talking about um, what illness means to them. And there's also an essay in there at the end um, from uh, uh, the, the poet Audre Lorde um, from her uh, Cancer Diaries, again, talking about the space that illness um, creates for the subject. And you know, reading Wolf, who had gone through um, the, the influenza, Spanish flu epidemic, uh, and her response to her own illness, um, it's, it's so divinatory in a way, but also we have, we, we've realised how much we have forgotten all the narratives of, of the previous pandemic. Um, 
it's it's amazing how those things remain silent and then suddenly uncover again in a moment of history and a historical repetition. Um, but but Wolf is basically saying, you know, we don't think about this precarious state of the body and the way it's our, our bodies are not whole and complete and you know um, as as sort of omnipotent as we would like them to be. We are fragile, changing cells. And, you know, obviously she wrote that book having particular um, uh, frigidities and vulnerabilities of, of, of the body and her response to illness. Um, and it's a wonderful essay. It's, it's quite a strange kind of um, uh, curved, odd and irregular uh, uh, kind of uh, way of, approaching this but she's she's saying you know as she was saying in, in similar ways um where are the female friendships in literature where are the relations between women she's saying you know what where is our real awareness of the body and I think that's that's coming from her work too thinking about biography and trying to write a new biography you know how do we situate the self in narratives I mean it's fascinating stuff I, I, I adore Virginia Woolf I would say she's she's along with Elizabeth Bishop she's one of the most important writers to me mm-hmm. and you if I can maybe quote something from your preface that that really stuck with me you, you say uh, referring to Woolf you say she's concerned with and here I quote you directly finding or making a new language in which to speak that which is not spoken about or which cannot be spoken in the English language, at least. And I thought, wow, that, that, that is quite powerful. So what, what do you think, what words or what structures does this new language have? Or how can we think about this language that she's looking for? Uh, well, I think, uh, again, just, just bringing it back to that experience of illness, I was very, very aware when I was unwell, that I was experiencing things in my body that I couldn't put a name to. So, so how do you describe it? How do you reach for it? And so, you know, naturally you reach for metaphors or you, you reach for things that might feel like cliches or things that are approximations of that experience. Um, and it was very, very useful to me to hear similarities of experience of COVID from those communities of people who were being ill. Especially uh, so maybe we should say for our listeners, uh, so you got COVID um, early on in 2020, is that right? That was 2020, mm-hmm. right well, in the I, first? In, in the first wave, so well, uh, April 2020, and mm. uh, it left me in bed for a year. <laughs> so mm. it, 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 it really was and is an ongoing uh, chronic health disability condition that, you know, I share with hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> more than that I mean just in the UK um so there's a sense that something is happening that medical discourse cannot frame and so you don't know how to you don't know how to describe it and 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 it does make your sense of self very precarious because you know that you're inhabiting this space which is not written about spoken about it's not in a textbook and if it's not in a textbook, then there's no way to treat it. <laughs> mm. And, and um, that has made me very, very aware of these ways of framing um, 
bodily experience. I mean, I, uh, I guess I've thought about bodies a lot in poetry, but this was a very new step into thinking about how bodies are described in medical discourses and valued, of course. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, the whole uh, necropolitics, Judith Butler thinking about disposable bodies, um, whole tranches of vulnerable people are being abandoned <laughs> in this pandemic now. And uh, mm. it's it's shocking, and it's also shocking having, um, you know, I've, I've had to address how privileged my very well body was, and and all that goes along with that, and and stepping into that space where I no longer have that freedom and privilege of experience is is you know salutary. Um, it's been a good thing to. To think about um, it's 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 changed the way I've thought about a lot, and that's always valuable. I'd much rather be well, I think, <laughs> but mm. but I do really value what it has given me in terms of thinking about difference um, and disability and um, my own assumptions, which you know I look back on and don't like very much. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned metaphors just now or, or ways of expressions. Is there anything? yeah that you remember was particularly powerful for you or particularly helpful in the way to conceptualize or trying to express what was happening you know any phrases any words anything that was helpful or comforting or just helping to make sense well I mean again on the Twitter sphere one hears a lot and it can be very helpful so for example the, the thing that people talk about with long COVID is this idea, and also for people who've got um, ME, um, this idea of fatigue. Mm -hmm. And trying to describe that is very hard because people say, well, you're just tired. We're used to being tired. As a culture, we're used to being tired. Mm. But it was very important to me when people were attempting to say on Twitter, actually, this feels like somebody's, I think somebody used a, a, a metaphor of trying to start a car ignition and and the ignition just not working, or um, people were trying to put into language that that feeling of incapacity when you just don't have energy, um, mm. you know, so that, you know, standing up is too much, picking up something from the floor that you've dropped is too much. Um, it tilts the, 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 the balance of, of, of your capacity, uh, which is uh, astounding. But I know that it helped me to know that other people were trying to frame that experience um, by giving examples of the everyday. And I suppose that's what poets do. They try and find a bridge, a connection in language. This is what I'm feeling. Here is the reference point that we might share so that you can understand this. Um, you know, and I suppose the poet's job is to really work very hard at doing that. Mm. And especially that every day. That is, yeah, well, why poetry really is I mean to me poetry is something I need for the everyday it isn't something that you just get out on a Sunday afternoon or so it's just fundamental to what you do and how you experience life and on, on this fundamental you know there, there was another bit if I could quote from you that you expressed so brilliantly where you reflect on your illness in and then you look at the notes that you took during times of being very unwell. And then you say here, I quote again, how strangely 
illness plays with our temporal faculties and elsewhere you call this time reinvented itself. Can you explain this a bit for us? Mm. Well, Wolf talks a little bit about that in, in her essay and um, the other great person I think who thinks about this um, in, in a slightly different context is Denise Riley, um, time, time Lived Without Its Flow, her essay on the loss of her son um, and this strange space that I think we all experienced during the pandemic where everything that we knew was stopped and that we had to sit within this space of the home and experience ourselves. And I think a lot of people looked backwards. They looked to, to, to the past. There was lots of stuff of people reconnecting, kind of um, going back and living past experiences as a way with, of dealing with the now. And, and I remember um, being at a, uh, uh, an online event uh, again, it was with Judith Butler where she was saying, you know, there's a sense that we have this moment now where we've all stopped and we have a moment to rethink the future. And her saying that in a way we had that moment right at the start and we've sort of thrown it away. Mm. That, that what the impulse or what the capitalist impulse or what the political impulse is to return to this idea of normal. Whereas, of course, there isn't normal. And I think I'm interested in the way in which, you know, this kind of mass trauma is being elided and erased. It's disappearing into the into the past. And um, it's, it's a good lesson in what history does. I was thinking about, you know, my mother's experience of the Second World War of being um, evacuated and all of those stories that I heard secondhand um, about what it was like to live in Liverpool during the bombings, for example, and, and, and thinking how much of a, of a cultural narrative we have of cheerfulness and, you know, like, oh, yes, it was all fine. And like, we were all brave and happy and strong. Whereas actually, I am sure we weren't. No. <laughs> I am yeah. sure our responses were as traumatized and complex as everybody's experiences were of lockdown, where we all thought we were going a little bit crazy because we all probably were. Mm. Um, and I'm interested in that disjuncture between an experience and then how we tell that experience. Um, mm. it's, it's very interesting to me. Oh, it's, I, th I think this is, this is super interesting. This, this relationship of time, this connection of the now and the past, and then the kind of toolbox that we have with language to understand this or to think about the sequencing or how we word and phrase and frame what is before, what is after, how we can imagine the future. And, you, you know, you also mentioned there just now this forgetting or hinted at memory, you know, and the memory of illness, the memory of trauma. Again, for memory, it's really time and language that is central for memory, because what else would memory then be? What do you make of the way in which memory can be experienced through language and stories and poetry? So how do we deal with memory? <laughs> Mm, I, I, I think it has been one of my big preoccupations. So my first book was called The Memory Tray and mm. um, it, it was based on that childhood game where you have objects on a tray and then somebody takes a couple of objects away and you have to remember what was there and, 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 and what, what has been taken away. And, you know, that seemed like quite a useful 
metaphor for the ways in which we we do remember selectively and how unstable and generative our memories are you know our, our, our memories are creative processes I think there's there's been done obviously I'm, I'm not an expert on this but there's, there's been a lot of work done around the, the the frigidity and the provisionality and the faultiness of memory and yet we're picking up all those threads in order to create the plots and narratives of, of our lives as we reconstruct them you know for example when you say how did you become a poet I come up with that story for you but it is a provisional story that will have changed all the way through my life as, as, as I've started to think about things differently. So, you know, memory is the poet's space, definitely, and what we select and how we transform that. Um, and I suppose for me, this relationship between poetry and language um, is often framed through an interest in psychoanalysis. So I'm really interested in that process of um, the, the therapeutic process as a way of accessing memories. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do that regularly, not, not in, in a way where I'm thinking of it as some curative process, but in a way where it gives me a space to think and to self-examine and to keep myself on my toes what I don't want to do in middle age is to get frozen and ossified mm. and I think you know that that's definitely one of the dangers of, of middle age and I am I'm so passionate about the importance for intergenerational conversations you know I think that the, the, the young generation of people my daughter's age people in their 20s their lives their experiences are so different from ours and they need a big say in what's going to happen in their future and I think the climate change stuff has, has, has also radically indicated that this is their future um, but mm. also that sense of cultural amnesia um, you know I was listening to the podcast that you did with Deborah Cameron and her saying you know like it, how, how frustrating it is to hear something being repeated yeah. culturally that we've already said and, mm. and and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm interested in um, thinking about women's histories. So um, in my first book, I was wanting to think about, well, why aren't there any women poets? Well, of course, there were lots of women poets. How do we yeah. claim them? How do we think about them? How do we create a narrative of explaining why they've kept disappearing from our traditions and, and that they always seem to be exceptional when of course they're not exceptional they they are they are there doing what they do and are often having a huge impact on their male contemporaries that then gets elided in, mm. in that history so um if you've got any ideas of what can be done to do this differently because that is another topic i'm, I'm always very concerned with this gender imbalance so why does this happen to women poets you know what's wrong with society that we still haven't fixed this so what can we do in that regard well I, I i don't think there's any big answer there are lots of little things that we can do um it, it, it's interesting we can put big terms on them so we can say you know women's poetry which which i have complex feelings about because I don't like 
boxes and I mm. and I am much more of a, an intersectional feminist really and, and and I and I do like seeing the complexities of ways in which different kind of intersections um, foreground experiences um, so those labels can be very very useful markers as long as they don't then become the kind of place where you just get put mm. <laughs> I like to be the agents of my own box you know mm. <laughs> um, what, what can we do um, that there have been huge changes I think in the last in, in my lifetime you know where I felt I was one of a few women writing about women's poetry now we have lots more women editors at poetry presses there are some really amazing women um, who are publishing um, and and supporting other writers men and women you know um, they're in those positions where they can help shape um, well, I suppose cultural value and the way in which we value those poems um, I think you've also done something really quite fascinating uh, when you published something together with your daughter. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that was about? Because... Uh, well, um, again, it comes down to lockdown when I was poorly and I, and I, I had this uh, essay that had been in train for a long time on gender in Elizabeth Bishop and I'd got it all mapped out and I had to finish it and I had the deadline and I really didn't want to let go of it hmm. because I was interested in what it was doing, but I wasn't quite well enough to finish it on my own and then I thought look this is really important that we get somebody who is in their early 20s who thinks about gender in a really different way from the way I think about gender and I learn and have learned such a lot from those conversations with a different generation you know you you realize the extent to which you carry the overhang of all kinds of assumptions about gender that are juggling around inside you and foregrounded in various ways and that you know your resistance to things changes as well so it was very very um liberating I think to have our two voices and in, in conversation working out a point where we could touch to think about gender especially when we were thinking about Elizabeth Bishop who you know uh, started writing in the 1930s so you know she's she's not quite my mother's generation but she's coming out of that 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 era pre-war um thinking about her femininity and and I, I i love bishop i mean people kind of commonly talk about bishop as being kind of you know kind of not thinking about a very strong eye she's kind of removed she's objective she's the cool clear detached voice uh, that's not what I find at all really I think um, she's very interested in finding a space where one can become a gendered subject um, and how can one can relate to a body and identify as female and that that goes and evolves throughout her work it's it's fascinating And can you share a bit of, you know, you said you learned so much from that conversation with a different generation. What was one of the main insights that you had? Um, yeah, that is a good question. I think it was more of a kind of organic thing, not one thing, but just uh, ch challenging assumptions about things that perhaps I might have taken for granted and had to explain, for example, or um, 
trying to evaluate how much I was invested in certain kinds of narratives, which which might feel um, old fashioned for, for, for to, to use a kind word. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's 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 pushing away at one's ideological biases all the time, and realizing how much one is invested in cultural versions of femininity. Hmm. Hmm. And I'd like to stick with that. Yeah, you've raised so many points now. I don't quite know which one to choose first, but let's go for this. We, you know, talking to the next generation because also earlier you hinted at how the next generation is so important when we look at the big problems of society, things like climate change, for instance. And that is a topic that brings us back to this idea of poetry is really about everything that matters in life. Poetry is for, for the everyday, in a sense. And what I keep coming back to for the life and language topic is really the natural environment and its precarity so the same way that you talked about the body and its precarity we have that with the environment that we find our bodies in in some sense and we are really destroying the environment for our own bodies and uh, language is an important way of how we can address that problem so we need a language to make the urgency felt or to move people to kick them into action and I know that matters to you too because you've recently very recently written a poem on this topic is that maybe one you'd like to read for us now so that our listeners can actually listen to some poetry too I'd love to um um as ever I'm getting this off on my phone um so uh this is a, a poem which sort of it was a commission poem for a climate change issue of a magazine called magma and um I've taken a, a sort of tangential um, approach. I, I wanted to think about that awful feeling where you realize that you've done something irrevocable, almost by accident, <laughs> and you mm. can't do anything about it. And that awful kind of heart-stopping moment of realization. Um, so it's called The Cure. We had come to the old house for a cure or a reason, a roadmap, or a railroad inked across a page to take us to recovery. Feelings were running high. We sat beside locked doors with children on our knees. The rooms inside were where the old men sat. They were weighing us and watching us. But who, we wondered, could possibly save us? Outside in the rose garden, decisions were being made. The light reminded me of lost things keys and spectacles and names and dates, words left on the tip of the tongue. There was a smell we recognized, not of warmed earth, the wet grass each morning, but of oil, of dirty summer afternoons in traffic jams, of oil slicked on wave-edged beaches, in the mouths and wings of fish and birds, oil in the old tank where the neighbor's cat lay pristine among blistered paint, the rust, the aching sun. In the waiting room, the children now grew restless, mothers wiping noses, scrolling on their phones. There were perspex layers, locks between us, a plastic box of blunted crayons, no paper on the table. The air was empty of animal sounds. When I looked again, the children's hair had started to fall out in clumps. 
skin puckering like old balloons. Shown in at last, the rooms were being dismantled, and I knew then, like a trip of flame, a spark from an ignition, we'd forgotten dates we'd meant to keep before. Now everywhere was being emptied, files and boxes balanced on the grobby office chairs. And I think of them now, how sorry we were, the old men and the children, the door propped open like a garden door we had left open once before, through which we could not really leave, despite the urge to run. Well, this is so powerful. This is amazingly powerful. And we are back with time, aren't we? Kind of we're in... <laughs> I haven't read that for a little while and I was thinking there, there are so many little coded things in there you know the rose garden I was thinking about Dominic Cummings and and um yes. sort of um you know it is interesting how those historical events just slip into tiny little references which you may kind of know other people might pick up on but but are just sort of little coded things and there's also um a reference there to Elizabeth Bishop's The Waiting Room to her famous poem where she has this moment of realization that she realizes she's a woman um but the the, the story there also is that um it was about an experience that I had of being in a waiting room, uh, an awful waiting room where uh, it was it was a, a waiting room for children waiting to be seen in a hospital. Mm. And it was the most desolate place. And there were, there were kind of attempts at making it better so that there was a box of crayons and they were all blunt and there was no paper. <laughs> and I remember thinking there, oh, this is awful. And I remember in my anxiety, just sharpening all the pencils <laughs> because I felt so desperately that there needed to be some kind of remedial act, you know, like here's, here's something that we can almost do, but we're not doing well and we're just leaving to, to just to decay. And, and, you know, there's also the idea of a dream where you wake up and you you kind of have that moment of oh my goodness did that really happen mm. you know and I, I I did enjoy watching uh don't look up at the at the holiday break that uh you know the, the climate change film um which is so funny and terrible and painful um really I really like that film I'm not, not least because that idea of looking up is something that is also in my book, Arato. It's a kind of tagline, which is look up, which is just like, get your head out of the sand. <laughs> We've got to start thinking about what we do. And, you know, I don't go as some of my friends do, um, who, who are part of Extinction Rebellion. I have such um, admiration for them um, using um, the language of the body and the language of theatre to remind us and to shock us into remembering that these things are very real. Um, yeah I mean the, the line that to me totally totally feels like something uh, you know I feel it myself in a sense is this um, we'd forgotten dates we'd meant to keep before I mean th this is exactly what it is we all know the clock is ticking and we just dawdle on and then at some point uh, have this surprise moment oh no one could have seen this coming but we are in it and we need to do something about it so you you were just mentioning your friends they're using the language of the body to shock people into action what what do you think is is there that we could do even more in terms of activist poetry to wake people up to yeah do something 
Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know, Michaela. I think there are a lot of people out there doing it a lot better than I, I, I could do it. And I suppose we find our own particular ways of of doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose I've written a lot about nature, and and one of the things that I'm thinking about now is, you know, what it means to write about beauty in the natural world because um, I can't do that innocently. Uh, mm. Maybe never could, but I, but but I can't do that innocently now, and I have got to think about how I put nature in in my work. You know how I give it a context, and you know the, the same comes down to beauty. Um, and I think one of the things that Errata Errata is the, the the muse of lyric poetry. What one of the things that I'm trying to think about in that book is what what can poetry do in all this difficulty and ugliness if mm. it is in some ways, a space of beauty. I mean, I'm not saying that it always is, but I think it can be. And I think I've been very interested in lyric beauty and a way in which certain mixtures of words can give you a strong, effective pleasure. So what about displeasure? What about ugliness? And I think that's one of the reasons that the the book is interspersed with prose pieces, which are sort of um, auto-fiction in a way they're saying you know here are some experiences from my life that I'm not able to put into poetry what happens when I juxtapose them with a piece of poetry that perhaps even tells the same experience um and, and I'm trying to work that out I'm trying to work out what what I think poetry can do really a big 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 project I mean and I'm doing it in a tiny way but I think that's preoccupying me at the moment yeah, and you you also are thinking about big projects. I saw somewhere you also did a project, um, was it Yemen or something, where you worked with people using poetry for um, bigger causes. Was was that the project? Uh, I've been working with an extraordinary organization in Liverpool, Liverpool Arab Arts Festival. Yeah. And uh, one of the projects came from a uh, collaboration with uh, my friend Janet Watson at the University of Leeds, who works a lot on Yemen and actually climate change and um, ways in which um, you can rescue languages in, in danger of becoming extinct or lang languages which are, are, are not documented. Um, and that sense that, you know, The, the, the way the way we tell the world the way we see it is, is is Anne Stevenson and it's a phrase that I always come back to if you do not have the language to talk about your environment then how can you relate to that environment and its fragility um, and, and ways of telling nature become very important in ways in which we value nature but also exist within it so um, the, the Yemen project um, was um, quite simple in a way in that, that that she was archiving and documenting poems that were oral and that were mm. in danger of being lost because of the war, the terrible war that's been happening the last six years in, in Yemen um, and about which I knew very little. And it's been such a privilege to, to have an experience of that and to learn more about what's happening in, in, in that very extraordinary and beautiful country and to hear more, much more about its poetic culture. Um, so what we were doing there was we were um, working with communities and getting people to write poems um, that came as a response 
to their experience of being outside of Yemen now. Um, and I, I'm always interested in this, this, this idea of translation. And I think it comes back to the idea of living in that double language where I have no Welsh, but I'm very aware of a language that might be able to speak my experiences of me differently. So um, the, the, the poems were, if they were written in English, were translated into Arabic and also into this language that, uh, this dialect that, that Janet studies, Mary. Um, and then we translated them again into film. So it was thinking about how somebody's experience of a language and a culture can shift across languages, but also be translated into visual images. And again, that's something I find myself often writing about this relationship between the image and the narrative that goes alongside it. Um, yeah, you have very recently, I think only a couple of weeks ago now, isn't it? You've written something on this translation between text and image because you, um, what was it, 14 pieces of love? Was that the title where you looked at um, um, images and uh, the artist uh, Paula Rego and you described what was going on there? Is that maybe something you can tell us a bit about? Because that was very exciting as well, the translation of the text and the image and the language. And again, it seems to come back to this aspect of things that you can't easily tell, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I wrote a book about Paula Rego's work um, that came out in 2019 called The Art of Story. Um, and she is a London-based Portuguese artist, phenomenal artist. Um, she's had uh, quite a few really significant exhibitions recently. I mean, and, and also over the last 20, 30 years, but I adore her work and, and I um, recognize something in it um, that sits alongside that, that preoccupation. So she will often use stories and fairy tales. And um, what you will often get in Rego's work is a version of a fairy tale where you're being asked to review it or to see it against that base narrative. Um, but she will also, build in a historical sense so that you're getting quotations from the old masters. So it's this incredible prism that she creates between a story, the disjuncture of the image in relation to the base story, the fairy tale, and then this kind of historical visual um, narrative which where she's using quotations as well. So you get this incredible um, firing of, of, of dynamics between these 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 three aspects um and i think what i saw in that was something that was a, a possibility you know I, I like using intertextuality in my own work i'm always quoting from other poems and um framing what i'm thinking against something historical or perhaps something gendered um it's a sort of working method and i think i've learned that increasingly from seeing what she does in her pictures which, you know, if, if people don't know them, um, also metamorphose, metamorphose over her career. What I love is the fact that she doesn't just paint the same picture mm -hmm. in, in the same way over the years. She's moved from um, collages, which she was doing for 20 or 30 years. And then in her 50s, she went back to um, more figurative work with these incredible uh, dog women, um, which again is this sort of hallucinating between space are they women or are they dogs they're women and they're female bodies but they're all gesturing 
in a way that a canine might gesture so that these these dog women speak of something and for you know for, in her case it was um the the loss of a, a, a spouse and and trying to put that into language and embodying it through gesture which you know i i just it answered lots of questions for me Mm. And is that, um, if that is an okay question to ask, is that something that also has autobiographical references possibly for you? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, and I, I recently, I was talking to two wonderful uh, Rago scholars, um, uh, Ruth Rosengarten, um, who, who also lost a spouse and is a big you know, she writes a lot brilliantly, uh, far more brilliantly than me about, about Rago. And 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 um, also Manusha's but and, and she said to me recently in an email, Rego finds us. <laughs> you know, she 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 speaks something that we don't quite know, and we're drawn to it. And then when you start unraveling it, you think, oh, okay, now now I know why I'm interested in that. You know, it's it's to do sometimes with my my personal circumstances as as well as you know speaking more generally. Hmm. And, and maybe to mention for some of our listeners, there's a, there's a quick way of finding some good um, bits of this in these 14 little pieces of love. That is a blog post, isn't it? Where, where you get a bit of a preview of what you can then get in the book and you also see some of the images. Um, I, yeah. I found that quite interesting. So that is one our, our listeners can just access straight away. <laughs> yeah, Elsa has these uh, wonderful blogs that she puts up called and under the sign of the mammoth uh, and it's this idea of that which must be written um so she commissions a blog every every month and i was really happy to do one for her last month mm. yeah no i thought that was super one so everyone go and have a look at this um, um a, a point i want to get back to as well is um, you know your concern with the body that that is a topic i find um super interesting and I've done a lot of work on more narrative fiction and looking how the body is represented and um, also um, you know what people do in terms of body language and gender relationships and all of that and when you think of the body you immediately always think about space and place as well because bodies always are somewhere <laughs> they're somewhere in the room they're somewhere in the city and um, one question I wanted to ask is because you mentioned you've lived in Liverpool for a long time and I had some wonderful years in Liverpool and even though it was only five I still feel so at home in this city so there is something about Liverpool that even if you aren't there anymore and if you only rarely visit it just doesn't let go of you is there a relation between what you write, how you write, the poetry that you create and the place you live? Um, I'm sure so. Um, and in a way, in Arato, I was writing my place into that book in that I was documenting things that had happened. Um, my, my plan, if it all comes off, is to be in Paris in the autumn and to carry on that discussion um, but I mean, I live beside uh, Lippa, so I live alongside this iconic building that is full of young people singing and dancing and having sword fights and running around in strange costumes. And um, I'm, I'm very aware of the theatricality of that. And in a way, it speaks to something performed um, and performing about the way in which we do operate anyway. So, um, 
And maybe could you explain for our listeners LIPA, so the people who haven't been to Liverpool? And- so LIPA is the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, and it's the known as the Paul McCartney Fame School. They they are theatre professionals, performance professionals, musical theatre professionals who teach. So the idea is that they are teachers who are always embedded in practice. And it's an incredibly lively, beautiful place. And it's in the old school of art. So it's the place where the Beatles went to school in a way Mm. Um, and so right opposite my window it says school of art which reminds me you know it it speaks a lot of things that that phrase you know um it's reminding me to Mm. be well I mean it speaks for itself it's it's I think Liverpool anyway generates this incredible energy I like the fact I saw a piece of graffiti recently on one of my walks and it said Scouse not English and um, I definitely feel that um, that there are a lot of cultures there's a lot of diversity in the city that comes you know historically from it being a port um, not not always a comfortable history of course a, a mm. difficult painful history for many um, and I I suppose I locate myself as a Welsh person alongside Ireland. The fact that we look out to America, um, we are definitely on an edge. Um, I I always like being on that edge, I think. Um, But it is important to locate yourself. I mean, the the person that I have learned so much from the last few years is um, the thinker and philosopher Rosie Bradotti and her version of post-humanism uh, she's got a new book out, Post-Human Feminism, which, again, I pour over and think about. And the idea of ourselves being collaged, effective, um, transformational <clears throat> selves, which is, a, which is a very useful way to think about how, how we are, rather than simply located in a body that's got edges. You know, I, I, I like the fact that those edges are much more mutable mm. Mm. on the um on the location there, there's another thing i just wanted to bring up because something i will always remember is once you did a reading in liverpool in the national wildflower center which i think is just such a lovely place for so many reasons and um, you know this this experience of the center and then the the reading was in some way so communal you you know so so such a joint experience and um how how do you create such an atmosphere how how do you work with language in such a way that it's really about the yeah reading together with others reading for others experiencing poetry together I mean how much do you plan this how much do you put into this I mean one thing that was really funny was when your son was there and then he suddenly came and said something and you said oh that's my boy and kind of it it really came together so brilliantly so how do you plan this how do you make this happen Mm, it's it's interesting I mean very sadly the wildflower center doesn't exist anymore no this is terrible Uh, yeah, I mean, there's an extraordinary building with all these wild spaces and wildflowers in it. Um, place place that I, I, I love, but it, it has suffered from the last few years and uh, I don't know, funding, whatever has gone wrong there. But um, 
communities are very, very important to poetry. And I like the fact that it's not just a poetry reading audience that can be present at a poetry reading. One wants one's poetry to mean not just to people in academic context or not just to um, a sort of small constituency of, of poetry reading audiences. And I like the fact that in that space, we were approaching it from, you know, people who were interested in the wildflowers, who were interested in nature, who were interested in ecology, who might also be interested in, in poetry. Um, and, and I think, you know, when, when one has children and is one, one is writing about one's own life, it is difficult. There are lots of ethical decisions to be made there. And I think mm. probably that what you're remembering is I was probably writing about something that involved him or his sister. And he was pointing out to me, hang on a minute, I'm a real person in the room. <laughs> um, watch yourself. You know, this is what I mean about the younger generation, just keeping an eye on us and, and yeah. telling us where the, 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 the marker spots are, uh, where, the, where the lines are. Um, you know, obviously, poetry is, is, is made up of many communities now. And, and I think that we are lucky there has never been more of a sense of... Um, diverse communities coming together. I hope I'm not idealizing this, but I, I sort of feel there has been a sea change that, you know, the avant-garde and performance poetry and that there is less of a sense of people being separate and that there is more of a sense of people being able to speak with each other and to, to each other in slightly different genres, not, not genres, but slightly different ways of approaching an art form. Would it be too presumptuous if we um, had another poem by you that you would read for us because I'd really love to hear another one. So um, I'll, I'll read this poem and it's a prose poem. In, in the book I play a lot with the idea of the sonnet and unraveling the sonnet so I have poems that are 13 lines long where they're not quite sonnets or I have um, prose pieces that are in 14 paragraphs or 13 paragraphs and I'm playing with this idea of what it gets to to complete a poetic voice or to complete a, a, a kind of poetic form. Um, and this is a, a poem which again is sort of about time and place, but it's also about war, um, sadly too. Um, uh, it's also about bees. There's a kind of bee metaphor going through this, this book as well. Um, it's called Drone. I am listening to an interview with a man whose job it is to program drones. The interviewer asks him, how do you know when you are sending such a weapon to its target that civilians won't be killed? We are lying naked in a small, badly lit room. I do not know it yet, but a drone hovers in the blacked out crepey sky above us. Intelligence can be sensory or human, says the man. Someone often has their ear to the ground. I am moving a finger now down the line of hair which runs towards your groin. I put my head on your chest, aware of the weight of my thoughts. You are half asleep and making small sounds that equate with pleasure and its anticipations. But I cannot let this go. I sit up and ask the man on the radio, do you ever think about the people you've killed? 
No, he answers. The interviewer steps back in and repeats my question. As I listen, the glass in the window shatters. shatters. In slow motion, you are reversed back into the evening, shaking time off your heels. In a matter of seconds, you have disappeared. I think about nectar and pollen and honey, and my whole face bursts into flames. But I can still hear him, the man, the voice, even as the radio begins to click and buzz and your low moans fill the otherwise empty room. I can feel the glass under my feet. Never, he says again and again. No, no, never. This is very topical in that you've chosen this deliberately because of the topic, haven't you? I, I have, and, and you know, also, I would never have anticipated now what is no. what is happening. Um, I think I was thinking in some sense about um, some of the war that I knew about from what people had told me in Yemen, um, but not directly, but also about that sense of um, time and memory and mediation of things. So that, that poem came from a real radio interview that I heard I was driving and I couldn't believe it you know they were interviewing this person who programmed the drones and it makes me think about responsibility and technique and craft um, but also that sense that one can get locked in imaginative time and and what that space might be so this imagined space in this room what is that room it's an imaginative space thinking about connection um, I was probably also thinking about that film Hiroshima Mona, Mona More, which is a film, one of my favourite films that I go back to a lot, the Margaret, um, Marguerite Dura book, um, which again were, figures quite quite strongly in, in, in my book. Um, but it's the way in which the past and the present and the future can sit in one imaginative space, which in a way the poem can as well. And, you know, it's also... Um, it's also a very sad poem, I think. It's very, very sad and very topical. Um, as we're getting to the end of our time and we talked about past and present quite a bit, can we maybe, to end uh, the show today, think about the future a little bit? What, what can we do with poetry to maybe imagine futures that could then give us a bit of direction in the narratives that we have to order and create and tidy up for ourselves. Is there anything you can give us on the way today? Mm, I, I, I wish I could. I mean, the simple answer is to keep reading it, isn't, isn't it? Um, remembering that it's there, um, remembering that there is a long history of us as human beings trying to put these complex patterns of thought these complex kind of neuronal uh, ways of associating and thinking and finding moments of coalescence into one little space. And, um, you know, the fact that we can do that is, is a remarkable thing, that, that we can share that with other people, that, that instant of coming together, which has maybe taken a long, long time to, to, 
to to actually mechanically make but that feels like an instant of time um just remembering that we can do that <laughs> maybe is a is 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 a future thought oh i like that remembering that we can do it that's a very good closing statement isn't it thank you so much darren for being here this it was wonderful to have you thank you oh it's been such a pleasure michaela thank you and thank you everyone for listening until the next time